0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with William J. Cooper about his new book, The Lost Founding Father, John Quincy Adams, and the Transformation of American Politics. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about your... Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with William J. Cooper about his new book, The Lost Founding Father, John Quincy Adams and the Transformation of American Politics. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, yes, uh, I'm a historian. I taught for more than 40 years at Louisiana State University. I've written a number of books, mostly about antebellum America, but focused on the South. This is my first foray and a non-Southern topic, I found it enormously challenging and enormously exciting, mainly because it was such a new new area for me.
0: Uh, I have to say that in reading your book, a, a lot of the insights that you bring—not uh, just to antebellum politics, but Southern politics—definitely inform uh, your approach to John Quincy Adams, and it, it adds something that I haven't really seen before when I've uh, in, in books about John Quincy Adams.
1: Well, I thank you very much for for that kind statement, and uh, of course it of course it did. I, You can't get rid of your baggage that you have when you get there.
0: (laughs) How is it that you came to write a biography of John Quincy Adams?
1: I came to this topic because of uh, the (coughs) widow of my former undergraduate and graduate school teacher, David Herbert Donald. David had uh, agreed to uh, begin a book on John Quincy Adams, but he had not gotten very far before his untimely death. And his widow, Aida Donald, asked me if I would take it on and I did and she uh was very good she sent me the materials David had collected a trove of of uh research matter but David hadn't done very much in terms of writing or anything so uh, all the notes and the book itself is mine not his
0: now the title of the book points to uh an argument that you're making within it of John Quincy Adams as a lost founding father. Uh, was that uh the thesis that, that that uh David Herbert Donald came up with or was that something that you came up with as you were delving into the? No, I you no, know,
1: as I said, David uh left no notes about where he was going or anything like that. Uh that was my own my mine and my editors' on uh, decision.
0: Could you explain what you mean by referring to him as a lost founding father because as as You know, typically the case. We don't think of him as being part of that revolutionary generation.
1: No. Well, one reason I think of him, I think there are a couple of things. One, he's lost sort of in American history because he was not part of the revolutionary generation. And yet he comes before the Civil War and Lincoln. And then on top of that, second is he, he came up against Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson was a man who, like him or not, dominated his time. And John Quincy was sort of lost. But I identify him as a founding father because he actually knew George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. In fact, all the presidents from Washington to Monroe appointed him to office save for Jefferson. And his whole outlook on politics much more matched theirs. Uh, His education matched theirs. His experience matched theirs much more than the education experience of his contemporaries like Henry Clay, uh, Daniel Webster, or certainly Andrew Jackson. So and I, I think he was much more attuned to the founding generation, its ideals and its outlook, and he had a great deal of difficulty in coping with a, a literal transformation of American politics, which took place basically during his presidency, up to his presidency and during his presidency.
0: I like that, how you play that out over the course of the book, when you have him... Observing politics later in his career post presidential, and it really you really do a nice job of setting up as as how a founding father would comment on how America was changing in good ways and and, and in in ways that he disapproved of that's correct, yes. Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit about his childhood and his education and, and, and how it was that that reflected the, the ideas of the revolutionary uh, of the generation, the founding fathers.
1: Well, he had a most unusual childhood and education in the sense that as a young boy, he accompanied his father to Europe, where his father, John Adams, of course, who was one of the major founders and the second president of the United States, uh, he, he went as a diplomat, and John Quincy accompanied him there. There, for example, he met Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, both as a, as a boy. Uh, he was educated in France and in, in Holland. He uh, spoke French fluently. Not only that, but he also went as a sort of a secretary to uh, an individual who was dispatched to the uh, imperial court in Russia to try to obtain some assistance for America. And he there he went mainly because he spoke French so, and of course in the European courts, French was sort of the universal language. So he had a most different kind of upbringing than most of of his peers. Uh, He came back to this country from abroad, and he went to Harvard where his father had gone. He graduated from Harvard, and then he went and studied law. Of course, at that time there were no law schools. He went and and read law in the office of of an individual there in Massachusetts, and for a time he became... An attorney. Uh, he imbibed the classical outlook of the revolutionary generation. Uh, he was, uh, as I try to argue in my book, he was not influenced by the romanticism that came in early in the 19th century in, in uh, England and in the United States. Uh, he looked at the world as, as the founders did. He thought merit should dominate over everything. He distrusted political parties. Uh, he, 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 was, he was a man whose, whose whole temperament and outlook came from an earlier generation.
0: Another aspect of his life that reflects that is his commitment to public service. And as you explain, even when he is going, he's studying, reading for the law, you're preparing for uh, a work as an attorney. You already see that this evidence that he's drawn to a political career that he's contemplating. That people are approaching him, uh, you know, for political office, and it's not just because you know he's this you know very gifted person but also that he is the son of this per, of this political figure who is involved in politics and uh then becomes vice president of the United States
1: Oh absolutely and his parents his mother Abigail as well as his father John imbued him with with the, the notion that public service was something an Adam should should look forward to and Adam should be ready to to accept any when anybody said you should come and be a public servant. Of course, what John Quincy struggled all his life with is that he believed that he should respond positively to calls for public service, but at the same time, he could never let anybody know he wanted it, (laughs) and he could never put himself forward. He had to believe that other people recognized his ability, his experience, uh, and they would come to him for office, whether it was George Washington appointing him as the first as a minister to Holland in the 1790s when he was not even 30 years old, or when he was hoping to be president. In, in Monroe's cabinet, there were several people in the cabinet and the Congress who were angling to become president following Monroe, and uh, John Quincy Adams in his diary uh, damned them all, basically, for, for str- their striving, and yet he wanted it desperately, but he just he could never admit he wanted it. Can never do some of the things that he, he he condemned them for doing
0: that sense of preparation to distinguish himself really comes across that early section. You describe how he really applied himself to his studies and and he really comes across as an extraordinarily well rounded person even before he uh, first takes public office
1: oh I, he was in many ways a renaissance man i he i think was probably the most I can't say the most intelligent, but probably the most educated person to be in the White House. Uh, His command of languages, especially the ancient languages, Latin and Greek, well, he also knew French, he knew German, he knew Dutch. Uh, He uh, read very widely. He was an amateur astronomer. And, of course, later on, when he was a congressman, he was instrumental in setting up the Smithsonian Institution. To advance science and, and, and to advance knowledge in general. And of course, for a time, he was a, a professor of rhetoric at Harvard, the first professor of rhetoric ever at that institution. So he was a, a man of considerable learning and a, he was a, an extraordinarily bright individual. And that
0: obviously plays a role in his uh, entry into the diplomatic service. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that service, uh, the, the roles he served uh, in Europe, and, and, and what it was like to serve in those roles during a time of enormous tumult.
1: Well, of course, he got his uh, sort of a baptism in the diplomatic service when he was in Europe with his father, when he was a, a, a boy and then a very young man. When General Washington, President Washington appointed him to be the minister of the Hague, he was first in the Hague and then the Netherlands, and then he went. He was a minister in Prussia. Then he was minister in Russia, and then he ended up being <coughs> the American minister in England. Between Russia and England, he was also a key figure in the American diplomatic team assigned to uh, negotiate an end of the War of 1812 that ended in uh, the Treaty of Ghent and, uh, and at the end of 1814. Uh, one thing you have to realize about all of his diplomatic service, two things, I suppose. One is the communications. You know, it took a very, very long time for any instructions to get to him. And so, in other words, he could do a lot on his own. He, nobody could micromanage him. But the second thing is the whole time he was in diplomatic service from the 1790s till <clears throat> he came home, well, until 1815 he came home in 1817, but until he came home in 1815, I mean, till, till 1815, uh, Europe was wracked with the wars of the French Revolution. And after 1800, that were the Napoleonic Wars. And, and Great Britain and France were the, the leaders, in uh, of course, on two sides of, of this conflict, but the Prussians were involved, the Russians were involved. And Napoleon, who uh, occupied the center stage in Europe, John Quincy uh, was transfixed by, by the man he he uh he thought Napoleon a military genius, but he also thought Napoleon would be brought down by his overweening ambition. And ambition was something that John Quincy Adams had he could never admitted he had ambition. <laughs> because if he admitted he had ambition that would mean he, he admitted he wanted office and he could never agree with himself that he wanted office. <laughs>
0: This period of his life is important in another respect because it's here where he, it's during his time abroad that he meets and marries his wife, Louisa. And as you explained, it was something of a, uh, where of a moment of defiance uh, of his mother. I was wondering if you could explain how it was he met his wife and, and the controversy that that entailed within his family.
1: Well, he, uh, he met his wife in London, a woman who would become his wife, She was the daughter of a a Marylander who had gone to England before the revolution, representing tobacco interest in Maryland. He met a woman there in England. They had a number of children together, daughters together. Uh, The home of this individual became sort of a meeting place for Americans in Europe. And John Quincy Adams, uh, when he was at, Haig. He came back to London, and he was at this house, and he met this young woman, and he was infatuated with her, and he eventually decided that uh, that was the person he wanted to marry, and he um, asked for a hand, and he got her hand. Now, his mother and father weren't too thrilled about that because they considered her European, English. They worried that it would not fit. He, she as a wife of an aspiring American political leader wouldn't fit well in this country, that it might hold John Quincy Adams back. But John Quincy Adams really didn't tell his parents that he was going to marry this woman until it was all settled, that he would do it. He had had a love affair early on. I mean, he was in love with a young woman early in his life, and his mother talked him out of it. And he wasn't about to let that happen again.
0: It seems to have been a pretty successful marriage, even though...
1: It was a very successful marriage. I mean, they were married for a very long time. John Quincy Adams died in uh, 1848. They were married 50 years plus. Uh, But it was a tumultuous marriage in in a sense. Um, There were a lot of sadnesses in the marriage. Uh, As so many women of that time, Louisa Adams uh, experienced a number of miscarriages. Pregnancies were very difficult for her. She did give birth to three sons who uh, lived past infancy. I uh, the most crushing thing that happened to her. She had a daughter born, born when they were in Russia. And this young girl died very early in her life, within the first year. And uh, Louisa, in some ways, never got past that. Of course, their life with their children was not an easy one. The three boys, uh, they all went to Harvard. The oldest one was named George Washington. He did graduate, but uh, he had difficulty in finding his place in life. Being the son of John Quincy Adams was not easy because John Quincy dealt with his sons as his father and mother dealt with him. He was a very stern taskmaster. He made them do and worked to do, and he told them what their what their goals should be. And the elder one, George Washington, it's not totally clear, but most probably committed suicide. He jumped off of, of a boat in on uh, Long Island Sound. Uh, John Adams, the second, the next one, didn't even graduate from Harvard. He was thrown out for disciplinary reasons. Only the youngest one, Charles Francis, sort of lived the life that that John Quincy expected, and the life that John Quincy himself had lived. Uh, so there was a great deal of sadness. Now, in terms of their togetherness as as, as adults, as adult couple, a married couple. Louisa was very important in John Quincy's life as a politician, especially in Washington when he was Secretary of State. She uh, became sort of a social arbiter of, 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 of official Washington. She had soirees, she had dances, she had balls, she had small groups, and it helped John Quincy immensely in his quest for the presidency, of course. He couldn't see it as his quest for the presidency, <laughs> but when he became president, uh, there was a uh, anger, and the division in the country was such almost like tis now, and he incurred bitter political enemies. Uh, they made him bitter. He, in fact, became a great hater, just as his arch-foe Andrew Jackson was a great hater. And Louisa Adams just withdrew. Uh, when John Quincy was president, she had little to do with uh, his social life. And after the presidency, she didn't want him to go back to Congress. She was opposed to that. And when he was in Congress, she had very little to do in terms of uh, providing a social world for him to occupy.
0: You mentioned that uh, it became so rare for her to make an appearance when he would host people that he would even make a notation about it in his diary.
1: Yeah, no, she often just didn't didn't appear. She was also often. Uh, not well. It's difficult to know exactly what her physical problems were, how many of them were strictly physical or emotion came involved. It's just, it's not possible for us to be specific about that. Uh, But in all probability, her physical weaknesses and and, and emotional difficulties just coincided and it was hard for her. But she had no doubt that she loved John Quincy Adams and she spoke about him as a very special man and so
0: forth, uh, all, all the way through. You mentioned that uh, Adams was involved in the negotiations for the Treaty of Ghent, and one of the things that comes across in your description of it is that this is when he begins to interact with this Figure who's going to have enormous an enormous impact upon his career, which is Henry Clay. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about the negotiations that uh, that happened to end the war, his relationship with Clay, and and the role that played in him becoming uh, Secretary of State uh, early in eighteen seventeen.
1: Well, the War of eighteen twelve, which of course began in eighteen twelve, was not going well for the United States at all Uh, militarily, both on the water, especially on the Great Lakes. And on the battlefields, uh, American arms did not look good. And in fact, as you know, Washington itself was attacked by the British Army, and (coughs) it was burned. The White House was ransacked. The capital was burned. And uh, the uh, Americans had asked, the Russians had volunteered to arbitrate. The British wanted nothing to do with that, but finally the British agreed to have discussions about the end of the war because the British were concerned about what was happening in Europe. Uh, 1814, Napoleon was finally vanquished, and there was be the, the, what became known as the Congress of Vienna was going to take place in 1815, and this would settle the future of Europe for a long time to come. And that was much more important to the British uh, than the United States. And then the British had uh, asked their leading military figure, the Duke of Wellington, who had defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, to go to the United, to go to the United States and take command of the British effort. Uh, Wellington said, well, he would go, he was a professional soldier, but he would need this and this and this, and the British government decided it just couldn't it couldn't do all that, couldn't manage all that politically, financially. And so they were ready to make a, a deal. At the same time, they wanted to put America in as weak a position as they possibly could. And so the initial terms the British offered uh, would require the United States to agree to demilitarizing the Great Lakes, demilitarizing the Great Lakes, which meant that the British would dominate the Great Lakes. It meant the British also said there'd have to be no American expansion west of the Ohio River. There would be an Indian confederation between the Ohio River and the Great Lakes. And the American delegation, and, and get, uh, no matter their position on other matters, uh, absolutely refused both of those. They said, we'll, we, we'll, we'll fight to the end before we give up our independence, and they thought those, both those things were the giving up their independence. Now, at Ghent, John Quincy Adams dealt with other men. The most important one was a person named Henry Clay. He had met Clay earlier when they both served in the United States Senate, earlier in the 19th century. But this was the first time he was really close with Clay. And he and Clay were such different people. Adams was a scholar. Adams was a man consumed with detail. He didn't like to have parties. He didn't like to drink and smoke. He didn't like to stay up late. He was not really a natural politician. Clay was a natural politician. He loved card games. He loved to smoke. He loved to take a drink. And he and John Quincy Adams were almost diametric opposites in their personalities, in their personalities. And yet they got along at Ghent because they were both committed to American nationalism. They were both committed to seeing that America survived the war. Now, they differed on some things, but uh, all, all in all, I don't want to get into too much detail about the differences, all in all, they, they work together well. And of course, when the treaty was signed in late 1814, it was signed before the greatest American victory of the war, the Battle of New Orleans in early January of 1815. In fact, when that battle was fought and won by Andrew Jackson, news of the treaty hadn't even gotten to the United States yet. Uh, but uh, that victory didn't have anything to do with changing the treaty. The, the, the president put it to the Senate. The Senate ratified it all promptly and John Quincy Adams went from Ghent to become the American minister in England and When James Monroe became the president who won the election of eighteen sixteen, <clears throat> he was looking around for Secretary of War, I mean of state and Monroe was a Virginian, the third Virginian in the role in the White House, and he felt that they needed a New Englander. as a primary post in the cabinet. And John Quincy Adams had voted with uh, Thomas Jefferson's proposals, James Madison's proposals. He had served Madison in Russia and in Ghent. And Monroe Monroe offered him uh, the post of Secretary of State. Uh, Of course, nobody was more qualified than John Quincy Adams to get it. Uh, But again, it was a political decision on Monroe's part. The man who really wanted it was Henry Clay, but Clay was from the West and Monroe didn't think that politically that was what he should do. And so he gave it to John Quincy Adams and what was so important about the secretaryship of state, both Madison and Monroe had served secretary of state and gone straight to the white house. Even earlier Jefferson had been secretary of state and he went to the white house, though not directly. So it was looked upon as the jumping off place for the next president. Whoever had it, would have a leg up on all of his competitors to become the next president. That's why it was so coveted. But the decision for Point Adams was a sensible, logical decision. It was also a political decision. And, of course, for John Quincy himself, it was all to do with his merit, that he deserved it, that he earned it, which is true, but it was also political.
0: As as you explained, his secretaryship is one of the most momentous periods of American foreign policy in terms of resolving uh, some outstanding issues left over from the War of 1812. I was wondering if you could explain some of his major achievements during this period and how they did so much to really shape America's place in the world today. Well, I
1: think the two major things, but I'll back up before I get into the two particulars. John Quincy Adams had a vision of America as a great nation. America won, America a great nation. He had this before he became Secretary of State. He became Secretary of State. He had this vision. He wanted America to become a continental power. America at that time, the the Louisiana Purchase, which had been accomplished during Thomas Jefferson's presidency back in 1803, carried the American boundary. West to the Rocky Mountains, above the Spanish territories <clears throat> of, of te- Texas at that time, belonged to Spain. But when John Quincy became president, I mean, became Secretary of State, there was one big outlier in that, that was Florida. Florida still belonged to the Spanish. And John Quincy wanted Florida uh, to, to secure the American southern border, also to make sure that the United States was totally dominant east of the Mississippi. Uh, Spain was willing to negotiate about Florida, but Spain, but Spain was afraid of the United States. The Spanish government was weak, and um, they wanted to negotiate. The, they were willing to give up Florida, uh, but they wanted to try to restrain American expansion toward Mexico. That is toward Texas, because Texas was the farthest northern province, of, of northeastern province of Mexico. It abounded the state of Louisiana, and the territory <clears throat> of Arkansas. Well, John Quincy Adams negotiated a treaty with Spain in 1819, which is called the Transcontinental Treaty, or the adams onis Treaty. Onis was the Spanish minister, which gave the United States Florida. Now, that got involved with Andrew Jackson. We can go there if you want. Which gave the United States Florida, but also, and even more important, Spain ceded her claims to lands on the Pacific Ocean. The treaty line went up the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains and turned west, and what are now the states of Oregon and uh, Washington and Idaho became, America now had a legitimate claim to those areas, the window on the Pacific. It was called the Transcontinental Treaty because it did take America across the continent. Now, what the Spanish mainly wanted was to keep America from getting closer to Mexico itself, and so the boundary line in the south was set at the Sabine River, which was the boundary between the American state of Louisiana and the Spanish province of Texas. And of course that river is still the boundary between the states of Louisiana and Texas today. That's the first thing John Quincy Adams did. But then John Quincy Adams wanted not only to secure American power in North on the continent, he wanted to assert American power in the Western hemisphere at this time. The rule of Spain, Spain controlled most of South America, Central America, and Mexico. Spanish control was slipping away. The Spanish government was unable to maintain its authority. Rebellions were taking place all about in in the South, from from Mexico on down. And what John Quincy Adams didn't want to happen, he wasn't worried about Spain, but he was worried about maybe Britain and or France would try to come in and take over the uh, former Spanish colonies. And he did not want that to happen. The British offered to, to the American government that, look, let's make a joint agreement between us that we will uh, sort of make sure that nothing, nobody interferes in what's happening in, in the Spanish domains. John Quincy Adams didn't want to do that. President Monroe did. But John Quincy Adams, let's do it ourselves. He said he wanted to make an American statement that said this is our hemisphere and nobody can bother us in it. This becomes known as the Monroe Doctrine. It was put in Monroe's presidential message to Congress in 1823. It went over Monroe's name but John Quincy Adams. It was his idea, and it was his writing, and he had sent letters, uh, to a uh, big letter abroad to his diplomats announcing that America was primary and America would not permit anybody else to come into this former Spanish empire. At the same time, he said, of course, the United States will not intervene in Europe as if the United States could intervene in Europe at that time. <laughs> it was impossible. But he, So he says that this hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, is America's, and it's America to decide what happens and what doesn't happen in this hemisphere. So those two things, making the country ex- a transcontinental country, a continental country, and then asserting American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. He's responsible for both of those. And many scholars of diplomatic history... Ray rate John Quincy Adams is probably the greatest secretary of state the country's ever had. He had a vision of what America should be, and he was able to accomplish that. He was able to see that vision become reality.
0: Now, this treaty, the Monroe Doctrine is declared near the end of Monroe's second term. That's and right. It was in so- 1823 and you're beginning to see this build up to the election of 1824. And what one of the fascinating things about it is this dynamic where you have these incredibly ambitious and extraordinarily capable politicians competing for the nomination and uh, and 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 for the, the the office, and it's ultimately won by the person whom, as you describe, is the one who is least willing to put himself forward for the job. How is it that John Quincy Adams becomes president in eighteen twenty four?
1: Well, in eighteen twenty, the campaign for eighteen twenty four, I don't think there's ever been a time in American history when more when a group of abler people were trying to get it. There was uh, Andrew Jackson. There was John C. Calhoun, there was Henry Clay, there was a man named William Crawford who is largely forgotten today, but in his time he was a political giant, he was a Georgian. Then there was John Quincy. You notice, though, Calhoun, Crawford, Clay, Jackson, they're all Southerners and or Westerners. John Quincy is the only person from the North or the Northeast who's in this contest. And while the others are making various kinds of efforts to push themselves forward. Uh, John Quincy Adams refuses to do that. People, his supporters will tell him people who like, well, you should do this. or you should do that. He backs away from all. He says he, he will not get involved in that kind of scramble. And he criticized the others who were involved in the scramble (coughs) for doing things he thought were untoward. Now, eventually Calhoun dropped out of the race because he uh, saw Jackson becoming too strong. And John Quincy Adams, interestingly, looked more favorably upon Jackson than any of the others. Uh, he and Jackson had formed a bond in the Florida when Jackson had been the American military man who was, went into Florida and put the Spanish to rout. Uh, there were many in the government who wanted to call Jackson on the carpet saying he was a wild man, but John Quincy Adams said no. He has carried the flag forward. He has made America look strong. He's benefited the country. And in turn, Jackson knew that Adams had supported him. And at first in the cabinet, Adams was his only supporter. Uh, people in Congress wanted to call him down as well. So John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson looked like they could be a team. And in fact, the greatest of all of Louisa, Louisa Adams's social events was uh, in 1824 uh, was um, a big party she gave for Andrew Jackson he was a senator, to celebrate his victory at New Orleans. Huge ball in her house. And when the the election came, the the, the electoral vote was split. Nobody got a majority. And that meant that it had to go in the House of Representatives. The Constitution says the top three people in the electoral college go to the House. Well, the man who was left out was Henry Clay. Now, Henry Clay... And John Quincy Adams had not been great friends during Monroe's administration because Clay in the Congress often was at odds with various aspects of what Monroe wanted to do, and his an opposition. He was a politician who wanted to make his mark. Uh, but with Clay as the man out, Clay became perhaps the most influential member of Congress. He was a speaker. Uh, Clay became the man who would um, who could really control who got it. Now, looking at the three people who were there, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Crawford. Crawford he had no use for. One thing, politically, uh, Crawford believed in limited government, strict construction of the Constitution. Clay didn't. Clay believed in things like a tariff and internal improvements. Uh, Jackson was a Westerner like Clay. He was from Tennessee. Clay from Kentucky. He saw Jackson... Uh, two things about Jackson. He saw Jackson as a companion of the West. Also, Jackson was a military man, a general. He, he didn't want a generalist president. That left John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams and Clay agreed on that the, the Constitution should be interpreted as what was known as broad construction. Uh, they believed in a strong central government. They believed in policies like a tariff or internal improvements that was spending federal money to build roads and canals at that time. And so Clay decided to throw his support to John Quincy Adams. And Clay did manage to get votes. Each state had one vote that John Quincy Adams was elected president on the first ballot. He even was elected with the votes of congressmen whose states had voted against him in the election. So right after the election, I mean, right after he was named president, uh, even before he was named president, John Quincy Adams and Clay discussed what might come about in an Adams administration. And John Quincy Adams offered Clay the secretaryship of state, which Clay accepted. When that became public knowledge, it was called the corrupt bargain. Again, John John Quincy had become president. He was the third in a row. Madison had become president. Monroe had become president. John Quincy had become president from being secretary of state. Now, here was Clay being handed the same thing to be the next president. And the opposition to John Quincy Adams began to come together with people like Jackson, people like Calhoun, and a very suave, shrewd New Yorker named Martin Van Buren, who didn't have the charisma or the abilities, statesman abilities of a Clay or a Calhoun, and certainly not the military fame of Jackson, but who was a very shrewd politician. He was building a political party, what would become the first serious national party, the Democratic Party, which lasts till today. Of course, has been very changed from what it was then. And they all came together against Adams. And Adams just couldn't conceive of the, all the opponents that would come against him. He didn't understand that politics was no longer where a group of individuals could just meet and decide what to do individuals at the top. He had difficulty dealing with that. And he proposed to Congress a very visionary program. of uh, He wanted a national university, a civilian university to match West Point. He wanted a tariff. He wanted uh, money spent for astronomical um, facilities. And he wanted much more than most Americans at that time were willing to accept. And his opponents jumped on him, and they said he didn't understand the public mind. He, in fact, one of the things he said in the message to Congress, that congressmen shouldn't be paused, that was his word, paused, by the will of the people, that they should vote for what they thought was right. And, of course, his opponents took him to task. The will of the people is what they're supposed to represent. And so all of a sudden, John Quincy Adams found himself embattled on every political front, He lost... The Congress was against him. He couldn't get anything through Congress. In fact, he didn't try very hard. Once he would make his general statement, he didn't push very hard to get very much through. He probably couldn't have gotten anything through if he had tried.
0: It's ironic, in a sense, that you see this change happening in politics, and it's one which he finds very alien, and yet that decision to choose Clay... Is what, in some respects, catalyzes it? Because, as you described, when they had the vote in, in, uh, in the House, Jackson comes up to Clay, uh, comes up to Adams, and shakes his hand. There, there's, there's no ill will. It's only no
1: after-, after the vote. That's right. They met at the White House, and you no, know, Jackson and, and Adams shook hands. It seemed to everybody it was above board, until the announcement that Clay was Secretary of State, and that it all came apart, because then the opponents, like Jackson, uh, Jackson felt betrayed. And he, he could say that, 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 that Adams had won the presidency with what J- Jackson called, it was like Judas, you know, silver. Adams had bought the presidency by giving Clay the secretaryship of state, which was again to repeat, was seen as the road to the White House. It's interesting that Adams-Clay discussions in his diary, which is voluminous, John Quincy doesn't talk about what the two men discussed. Uh, what's interesting about the Clay Adams and Secretary of State is not that Adams misjudged so but that Clay did. Clay was such an astute politician. And later in his life, Clay said it was the greatest mistake he ever made, political mistake, to take that job because it would it haunted him the rest of his the rest of his life. But Adams just didn't he didn't perceive things like how partisans would use what he did. And he didn't see how partisanship could really undermine or help an administration, give you one example: the man who was the postmaster general and the postmaster general was not a cabinet office was a very able person, uh, but he was not a adams man. He'd been put in his position by calhoun through calhoun's influence when in monroe's time, and Calhoun and Jackson were alive, so this man was now on the side of Calhoun and Jackson and the thing about the post office. So much patronage. Postmasters were all across the country, and they would put people in the postmaster, ship, postmaster ships that supported you. And John Quincy was told time and time again, this man is working against you. But John Quincy wouldn't get rid of him. He said that he hadn't done anything to deserve being fired. It was not malfeasance in office. It was nothing like that. Even when he realized that this man was hurting him politically, John Quincy wouldn't fire him. He, he couldn't bring himself because that would make him seem like a partisan. And he, he couldn't make himself into a partisan. And that in many
0: ways costs him any chance he might have had at reelection. It
1: cost him a great deal, because he did not use the office of the presidency, his powers, to put people in place to help his cause and to reward his friends. And that was what Martin Van Buren was all about. Now,
0: for so many presidents... The the day that they leave the White House is the beginning of this post presidential life, sort of the 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 autumn years where they're in retirement. Nowadays they write memoirs, and yet Adams then begins this post presidential renaissance, and he becomes this uh, he maintains this public stature uh, by getting elected to Congress. Why was it that he decided to go to Congress, and and what did he hope to achieve there?
1: Well, when he left the White House, he said more than once that his public career was over and his goal was he set himself to go which he thought was a a holy quest to write a biography of his father he thought his father was underappreciated he was bitter that his father hadn't gotten a second term as president he was the only president to that point who hadn't gotten a second term until john quincy himself (laughs) so father and son the only ones denied a second term and he set out to write this biography of his father it's probably a good thing he never did, because it would have been hagiography if he had gotten it done. Uh, but he couldn't hold himself to it. He couldn't keep at the task. And he was approached by people in his congressional district, which was down south of Boston, that he should run for Congress. Well, he was entranced at the same time he could not face the possibility of being defeated. And so he told him he didn't know whether he could accept or not. Uh, They would have to see, you know, if they put his name up, they could put it up, but he wouldn't say yes or no until he saw who his opponents were, and then even after the election he would hold back, decide whether he thought it was legitimate. He didn't want to be up front and be beaten again. But both his wife, she was distinctly opposed to his doing it, and his son, Charles Francis, was distinctly opposed to his doing it. Uh, They thought, well, Charles Francis thought his father or just sort of blemish his name and reputation because no other previous president had ever gone in public life from Washington forward. And Louisa, because she wanted nothing to do with politics, she hated politics. Well, John Quincy, he loved politics. He didn't want <laughs> admit he did, but he loved politics, and he let his name go forward, and he was elected overwhelmingly. And he went to Congress, and he stayed in Congress from that day until his death. In fact, he died in the capitol.
0: One of the things that you uh, ta- you focus on in uh, your book about his time in Congress, you would think that as a former president, he could, in some respects, coast on celebrity. But as you describe it, he took the job of being a congressman very seriously, not just in terms of going to Congress and making speeches, but in terms of doing all the work for his constituents. I was, I was surprised oh, by how often that came up uh, in, in those Oh travels. yeah, no,
1: he, 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 he understood constituent service was necessary. He would take, uh, try to help people get pensions. He would try to help people get jobs. He he was constant about that. But when he became a congressman, he thought the country was headed in the wrong direction. He thought the country was going, put it bluntly, to hell in a handbasket. There was Andrew Jackson who was the president, and Jackson had defeated him. In 1828, when he ran for re-election, Jackson had swamped him. And he was opposed to Jackson personally, whom he thought thought Jackson was uh, dishonest not in terms of of, of money, but in terms of of, of personality, in terms of dealing with people. He was opposed to Jackson's policies all all the way from the Indians uh, to financial policy. So he thought things were terrible. And he was uh, very much vigorous in the opposition. But there were a couple of years before he latched on to what would make him famous as a congressman, and that was an issue connected with slavery. It had to do with the rise of the abolitionists and it had to do with petitions. Let me back up just a bit. Now, of course, there had been some anti slavery sentiment in the country all along, but in the early 1830s, abolition societies were formed. And the abolitionists believed not only that slavery was bad, but that all slave owners were evil and that slavery must be ended immediately and without compensation. Heretofore, people had talked about, well, You know, slavery is bad, but it's been around a long time. It's all the country was involved in it. You know, we got to find some gradual way to end it, and certainly slave owners probably ought to be compensated for the the investment. But abolitionists would have none of that. It was a moral sin. And one of the, um, they decided on two tactics. One was to send publications through the mail, especially into the South, advocating abolition. Well, this caused a storm in the South. (laughs) And Andrew Jackson and his administration came up with a very simple way to stop that. The postmaster general told postmasters, don't send them. So it was you know, censorship of the mail is what it was. There was no law passed. And that remained in effect until the Civil War. The second thing abolitionists did, especially when their when the pamphlet campaign got arrested, they sent petitions to Congress. And the Constitution said that citizens can petition their congressmen about whatever they want to petition them about. And there'd always been petitions sent to Congress and some anti-slave ones, but they had never really gone anywhere. It was a procedure in Congress just to put them out. But John Quincy Adams took this as a way to strike at those he disliked. Now, this gets us to John Quincy Adams and the South and slavery. And I think I'll stop here and say a few things if that's okay. Sure. Well, John Quincy Adams, his first remarks against slavery had to do with the famous three-fifths clause in the Constitution, and which slaves counted as three-fifths of persons, which gave southern states more congressmen, thus more electoral votes. And, for example, he saw Jefferson's victory over his father as a result of the three-fifths clause in 1800. He saw the three-fifths clause giving southerners more power in Congress to stop laws that they didn't like and to thwart his national vision. And so, politically, he, he was vigorously opposed to what he saw as Southern power and the Three-Fifths Clause on which it rested. But then he comes to the question of slavery. And he never really talked about slavery very much in his diary until the Missouri Crisis. The Missouri Crisis came in 1819 when Missouri petitioned for statehood. Missouri was a part of the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, Slavery was legal in the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, Slaves had been in Missouri. And Missouri petitioned to come into the country, uh, come into the Union as a slave state. There was a great crisis in Congress over this. Uh, Northeasterners wanted to stop it. Southerners said, you can't stop it. The, the, The Missourians have the right to choose. Suffice it to say, it was a compromise engineered in no small part by Henry Clay, who was the Speaker of the House, to the famous Missouri Compromise. When this was going on, John Quincy Adams began to ruminate about slavery. The only person he really talked to about it was Calhoun, and these were private conversations. And He said that he thought slavery was a dangerous thing, it was wrong, and that he would begin to wonder whether the country could survive with slavery. And he went so far as to say in his diary that the treaty he had presented to the Senate, the Transcontinental Treaty, the Purchase of Florida, if he'd been a senator, he would have voted against it because it didn't bar slavery. Now, the, the, just think about this. This is a man who's a secretary of state. He's a national officer, so he's negotiated this treaty. It protects slavery in the Florida. He presents it to the Senate, but he says if he'd been a senator, he'd have voted against it. He would represented a smaller constituency where he could have let his moral views dominate. He would have been against it, but as a national figure, he couldn't say anything publicly. And in fact, he assured various Southern congressmen in the 20s that he really wasn't against slavery so much. That that he that he really wasn't. He, he was not yet ready to sacrifice his political career on the altar of anti-slavery. The Republican Party, the Republican Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe was... Dominant in the country, they would have nothing to do with somebody who was anti-slavery. Even when he becomes president, he makes Clay secretary of state. Clay is not only from a slave state, Kentucky, he also owns slaves. There were two other Virginians in his cabinet. On top of that, when he was elected president, four slave states voted for him in the House. Out of the 13 votes he got, four were slave states. So he was not publicly against slavery yet. Privately, yes, but not publicly. When the House crisis comes and the petitions, he stands up and he says, the petitions were usually to, uh, initially they were usually to uh, bar slavery in the District of Columbia. Uh, uh, Congress, according to the Constitution, Congress controlled anything in the District of Columbia. Uh, Most people believed, including John Quincy Adams, that you couldn't touch slavery in a state that was protected by the Constitution. But District of Columbia is another matter. Well, Adams presented these things, and he got them tried to talk about them when he presented them. He made Southerners mad, and he knew he could get them angry and anxious, and he did. He was a just, he knew how to twist the knife. He would say things about the South, and this went on, and then finally the Congress, the House passed the famous gag rule, which was to keep him quiet, to shut him up. He said on the floor, am I to be gagged? And he was gagged, but gag rule simply said that these petitions were submitted they would go to a committee, and nobody could say anything about it. Well, that that stayed in, in, in force for a number of years before it was finally repealed in 1844, but that didn't stop John Quincy Adams from trying to bring things up about slavery, from saying things about slavery, and about the South. And what's interesting with John Quincy Adams in the South and his condemnation of slavery, he focused really solely on Andrew Jackson and the Democrats. Jackson was his boy in the Democratic Party was what he hated. Remember the Democratic Party with Jackson and Van Buren following Jackson? They dominated the national government from 1828 to 1840, the time Adams first went to Congress in 31. But Whigs, the party that became the opposition party to Jackson, that was the party of Henry Clay. Now, Clay was a slave owner, too, and there were southern slave, owning, slave owners in the Whig Party. Adams never condemned them. And in his diary, he talks about congressmen he likes and admires. A number of them are Southerners, slave owners, but they're not Democrats. And he makes three major speeches regarding founding fathers. He gave eulogies for Madison and Monroe, and he made a long speech on the uh, anniversary of George Washington becoming uh, the, uh, the first president. And none of those three, of course, all three of those men were slave owners. He doesn't bring up slavery because he admired those men, and he didn't want to bring up something that would blemish their reputations at all. In 1840, when the Whigs won the presidency with William Henry Harrison, John Quincy was overjoyed for a time. But as you know, Harrison died a month after he was elected, and John Tyler of Virginia became the president. And Tyler had been a Democrat. Tyler was a slave-owning Virginian. He was against national power. He was against all the proposals Henry Clay had about banks and tariffs and such, and John Quincy hated Tyler with a passion. He thought he he said Tyler didn't even have the right to be call himself president. They called Tyler his excellency, <laughs> but some did. And John Quincy thought he should say, sign his name as acting president. Well, of course that didn't happen. Tyler claimed the the whole the whole everything, and then and, and it was uh, accepted. But and then when Polk replaced Tyler. And Henry Clay lost in 1844. John Quincy was absolutely crestfallen. What's happening then also is Texas. Texas comes up <laughs> again. Now John Quincy Adams, when he was president, he tried to get, uh, tried to acquire Texas. His Secretary of State Henry Clay made some efforts for Texas. By this time, Texas was Mexican because Mexico had revolted from Spain. Now Mexico uh, early on encouraged American settlers to come into Texas. Most of those who went into Texas came from nearby states like Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, slave states, and they brought slaves. So early on, Americans were in Texas, white Americans, with their African-American slaves. Uh, Mexico, of course, had abolished slavery, but slavery was in Texas with Americans. And when John Quincy Adams failed to acquire Texas, Well, Texas comes up again in 1836 when the Texans themselves revolt against Mexico and revolt successfully, though Mexico does not accept the independence of Texas. And their efforts to have Texas become part of the United States, Jackson clearly wanted Texas, but he stayed away from it for political reasons. Van Buren didn't want to touch it for political reasons. He thought it would divide the Democratic Party north against south. Henry Clay was adamantly opposed to Texas. But John Tyler saw Texas as a way he might get himself a second term as president. So he pushed Texas. Uh, but Tyler's efforts to, to get Texas failed. He couldn't get a bill through the initially through the Senate, uh, an annexation treaty. Then comes the election when James K. Polk, who ran on the platform advocating the annexation of Texas, the Democratic Party. And Tyler then comes back to Congress in the aftermath of Polk's victory and gets a measure through the House and the Senate. Not a treaty, just a, a resolution annexing Texas. So Texas will become a part of the United States as a state. John Quincy Adams thought that this was the end. He thought it was horrible. And of course, he had tried to get Texas all those times. But now it was terrible because it was connected with slavery. That's what he said. He said if he had been able to get it as president, they wouldn't have had slaves there. Well, uh, he was thinking fancifully. Slaves were already there, and they weren't going to go away. But he was very opposed to Texas. And then he failed on that. And toward the end of his life, he was very despondent about where the country might be going.
0: And yet, as you describe, these final years have a measure of personal triumph because by that point, he is this national icon. He's this living link to the Founding Fathers. Oh,
1: yeah. That's absolutely correct. When I say he is despondent about where the country is going. Just give you one example. He told a friend that he could be happy if his Whig party in 1848 would nominate an anti-slave candidate. Of course, he died before the election of 1848, but the Whig candidate then was a man named Zachary Taylor, who was a hero of the Mexican War, which Adams opposed, and a slave owner from Louisiana. So what Adams would have done if he lived to 48, I do not know. But even toward the end, He told his son, Charles Francis, never give up, never despond. One thing we haven't talked about at all is religion. Adams was a very religious man. And he said that God, he was convinced that God would not let the country continue a slave country forever. Now, you mentioned his his, his standing in the country. He was venerated. He took two big trips to the West in the early 40s, to the West. That means as far as Ohio. And all along the way, he was cheered, railroad stops, feeded this and that, an incredible experience for him. And you can't imagine all those people applauded his politics, even cared about his politics. But they saw him as a living link with the past. He actually knew George Washington. There was no other public figure who could say that. He knew all the founders. He knew Washington. He knew Benjamin Franklin, he knew Jefferson, he knew Madison, he knew Monroe, he knew all of them. And while some people might have known, say, Monroe or Madison, uh, Madison lived up to the mid-30s, Monroe lived uh, up to 30, he knew all those people, and he was looked upon as a link, a link to the American Revolution, as a link to the past. And when he died, even in the South, which he'd excoriated so, Southern newspapers from Virginia to Texas, Democrat and Whig alike, praised him as a great American, as somebody who stood alongside the Revolution. Adams would have been pleased at the way they praised him, because that's the way he saw himself. But he would have been surprised, I think, that the Southerners offered him that kind of praise. But they did, and of course, when he died... A train carried his body back to Massachusetts, and all along the way, there were throngs out, and he was, major cities, there were stops, for example, he was taken, the body, the casket was taken from the train to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, was taken from the train to City Hall in New York City, where people could file by, and he was, of course, finally buried in his hometown in Quincy, just outside of Boston. But of Adams, through his long life, one thing he did, and one thing I try to stress in my book, he was a man who started his career that the union was primary, the union was paramount. In fact, he was early on asked to talk about the state of Virginia and Virginians. He said he doesn't see Virginia Virginians, he sees Americans. But he also, the last of the founders in that respect, he's the first of major figure who said, I don't think the country can survive, in Lincoln's famous words, half slave and half free. He thought that freedom would eventually win, but he didn't see how the country could survive half slave and half free. In many ways, he was a um, sort of a foreword for Abraham Lincoln, if you will, in the way he looked at slavery in the country. And of course, the Republican Party, Lincoln's party, comes up in the mid-1850s, and if John Quincy Adams had lived, he would surely have aligned himself with the Republican Party. Uh, But he did make that change from being a great nationalist, the nation first, to being, you could say, a qualified nationalist, because the nation, as the founders put it together, with slavery couldn't survive. He didn't want it to survive.
0: He recognized what was coming and that something had to be. Well, he
1: finally decided, and it's hard to know exactly when this happened, that it was not going that that slave that slave owners would not give up easily, that it would probably have to be some sort of war. And he did foresee that a military conflict would take place, but he also foresaw there would be a great slavery, of course, which never took place during the Civil War. He thought there would be a great slave rebellion in in, in the South when when the military conflict began, and of course that didn't occur. But he did see that once the war began that the president, the executive would have war powers that would allow him to do things that you couldn't do in peacetime. For example, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln could never have done that without the war, and Adams foresaw that. So he went from being the Union above all to the Union had to slavery had to go.
0: Yeah, in a way, even though he was a member of that founding generation and, and and was sort of out of step with so many things were happening in politics, he was being changed by it as well.
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. Once and he, he saw it all connected with Jackson and the Democratic Party, what became the Democratic Party, that these people were pursuing policies that he was that that he opposed. They didn't want to have a high tariff which would help manufacturers and help the country go economically. They didn't want to support federal money for internal improvements. They wanted to take the land from the Indians. They wanted to expand West Texas, the Mexican War, which he saw only as expanding slavery. James K. Polk would have seen expansion. The fact that slavery was expanded was, was, to Polk, incremental. I mean, not incremental, it was secondary. He wanted to expand the country. If slavery was expanded, that was all right. There was no moral question. Neither was for Jackson. But for Adams, it was. And in fact, Oregon comes up at, at this time. The uh, the British and the Americans had a sort of co authority in Oregon after the Transcontinental Treaty. Uh, but uh, that, that is broken away from, and they, they separate, and America asserts its own authority in Oregon. And Adams is all for that. Expansion is great as long as you don't have slavery. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the expansion and slavery were all connected with the Democrats as far as he was concerned
0: well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what
1: you're working on now <laughs> I'm not working with anything right now I'm retired <laughs> I've got this book done thankfully and where I'll go and when I'll go I do not know
0: <laughs> well I'm sure that whatever it is you undertake next will be absolutely amazing uh, Professor Cooper thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us I hope you have a
1: wonderful day Thank you very much, Mark.